Thank you for listening to Eclipsed Epics. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 12, Expulsion from the League. Last time we went over the story of Group Tavela shutting down 8th Army's operations north of Lake Ladoga. That meant that any breakthrough of the Mannerheim line would have to be from 7th Army. But it has been a while since we checked in on 7th Army, so to continue this story, we will rewind about two and a half weeks to December 6th, where a bridgehead was created at Kukiami, but any subsequent offensive stymied. In addition to that failed offensive, the rest of the tidal wave that was supposed to be 7th Army was supposed to break against and break through the Mannerheim line by now. But there it stood. On December 3rd, Meritzkoff, the leader of the Leningrad Military District and this invasion, issued a general order for 7th Army along with 8th and 9th Armies to hurry the hell up. After 7th Army's subsequent seizure of that bridgehead, its commander strongly suggested to Meritzkoff that this offensive should be focused on Vipuri after his soldiers refused to advance any further than Kukiami without the proper artillery support. But these forward units were always going to stop short. Look at their situation. Beyond that bridgehead, there was no shelter from any bombardment of artillery and bullets from the Finns sitting pretty on that Mannerheim line. That suggestion from 7th Army didn't matter on December 8th, though. That day, the Soviet High Command, or Stravka, put a temporary stop to all the offensives on the Isthmus. Just for reference, Stravka consisted of mainly three men. Stalin, Clement Vorshilov, the Defense Commissariat, think roughly equivalent to the United States Office of Secretary of Defense, and you're not that far off, and our old friend, the rational one, Boris Shapashnikov. You will recall that Shapashnikov decided to zig, i.e. predict and plan a rational, methodical invasion of Finland, while the rest of the Soviet Union zagged, planning for the conquest of the Karelian Isthmus in 10 days. Well, December 8th was the 10th day, and you know what? Not only had the Isthmus not been conquered, but the Red Army sputtered against the first line of the Mannerheim line. It still showed no sign of being broken through. It's almost as if ditching operations based on years of intelligence and thought in favor of one based on emotion, however jubilant, is a bad thing. The halt to the floundering on the Karelian Isthmus was called to reorganize these efforts. 7th Army's commander was sent to Moscow for administrative duties. What these duties were is anyone's guess. In Stalin's Russia, that can range from mind-numbing paperwork all the way to being Beria's beating boy. Filling that vacancy at 7th Army was the leader of the Leningrad Military District, Meritskov. This demotion was well-deserved for all the reasons I have repeated this season. His planning of this invasion was poor, and execution was worse. This invasion was taken over by Stravka. It decided to double the ranks of 7th Army, bring up more artillery, and plan for a second offensive on December 15th, focusing again on Kukiami. The planning of this new offensive 
on the isthmus was given to the man who so expertly planned the whole invasion on short notice, Surreal Meritskov. Meritskov imagined a breakthrough would come somewhere between Soma and Lake Molan Yarfi, a lake located more centrally on the isthmus in the western sector of the Karelian Isthmus. From there, secondary operations would carry on to Kukiasami, near the southwesternish shore of Lake Ladoga. And finally from there, the Red Army would turn eastward, with help from a more eastern breakout, maybe near Tepili, in Circle Vipuri. To affect this outcome, Meritskov planned a preparatory artillery barrage to soften up the Finnish defenses. This barrage was seen something as putting refrigerated butter in the microwave for like 30 seconds to make it more spreadable in the days back before these newfangled formulas of butter that are spreadable right out of the fridge. In addition to putting the butter in the microwave, Meritskov planned on the combined efforts of various units, including artillery and tanks, to spread that butter. While Meritskov had the microwave to soften the butter to continue this already tortured metaphor, he lacked the proper knife. By that I mean, Meritskov needed interaction between junior commanders of those various units to achieve breakthrough. And as I said before, this is a new tactic, combined arms assault. Generals were trying to use this less than two decades after its inception without a major conflict to codify it as standard doctrine. The upcoming Second World War is the major conflict that is going to do that so much that we in the 2020s think of it as normal. It is obviously combined arms tactics. Compounding Meritskov's problems here were the residual effects of the Great Terror. Recall that the officer corps that survived that was largely untrained, Undisciplined, sycophantic, Stalinist cyborgs with commissars breathing down their neck, just waiting to catch him slipping. Soviet commissars were the world's worst micromanagers. Though your micromanaging boss does not have the power of life or death over you. Yet. These facts, along with the poor planning, combined to create a deleterious effect on the Red Army's performance in Finland. The second offensive on the Karelian Isthmus was launched either on December 14th, according to Trotter, or December 15th, according to Van Dyke. Either December 14th or 15th opened with an eight-hour preparatory barrage that included artillery and an aerial bombardment near Tepili, near Lake Ladoga. After the barrage lifted, the defending Finns saw not only 20 tanks advancing toward them, but a whole infantry division. The Finns waited until the Red Army reached a planned zone of slaughter, and when it did, the Finns opened up. And after about five minutes, that red tide receded, and at least 300 lay dead with 18 tanks destroyed. This was another attempt and failure for Red Army offensives on the Isthmus. According to Carl Van Dyke, this operation failed because it was compromised by organizational incompetence at every level. He quotes a tank battalion commander, Captain Yanov, to further illustrate his point. Yanov said, and I'm summarizing here, the roads were choked with units that were intermingled, 
creating incredible chaos. Yenov would continue by saying radio stations were all different, so no radio communications could be secured between units. Around this time, the Soviet Union was kicked out of the League of Nations. And to trace this arc, we need to travel back in time about two weeks to the formation of the Finnish government under Tanner and Riddy. That new government wasted no time in putting its plan to stop the Soviet invasion into action. Remember, Finland had no real way to win this war in the field outright. So its strategy had to be to hold on for as long as it took to bring the Soviet Union back to the negotiating table. It had to bring the Soviets back to that table because Stalin cut off all ties to Finland as part of the invasion. So a millisecond after that new government under Riddy and Tanner was created, it went before the Security General of the League of Nations to get help bringing an armistice with the Soviet Union. For those unfamiliar, for those unfamiliar, the League of Nations is largely seen as a precursor to today's League of Nations. It was created in the ashes of the Great War. While war was still going on, to be completely honest with you, because we think of the Great War ending on December 11th, no, not December 11th, uh, November 11th, 1918. But there were a bunch of different wars that were happening through the late 19-teens and into the early 1920s. Like, you can think of the uh, Soviet-Polish War. Um, a lot of stuff going on in Eastern Europe. But the League of Nations was created in the ashes of what we believe is the Great War, you know, ending in 1918. And the hope of the League of Nations was preventing another war like the Great War, from happening again. But here we are, not 20 years after its establishment, and the hope of avoiding another grand global conflagration seems quite bleak. Hitler invaded and subjugated half of Poland, triggering Britain and France to declare war on Germany. Japan was trying to conquer China and the rest of the Pacific, charting itself on a course for conflict with a major power soon. And the United States was just so happy to see everyone getting along. Just as long as they don't say, bomb one of her ports by surprise. Anyway, the Soviets' response to Finland's appeal to the League of Nations was not good. Vashili Molotov, Soviet foreign minister, surly survivor, and dealer of diplomatic duplicity responded to Finland's plea by continuing to not even acknowledge a war existed between the two nations. Furthermore, peaceful relations did exist between the Soviet Union and the Finnish People's Republic, the truly legitimate government of Finland. Molotov pulled a similar move to a move siblings have been annoying each other with since the Big Bang. Most of us are familiar with putting a finger within a hair's breadth of our sibling without actually touching them. Properly annoyed by the invasion of their space, the sibling squeals to the parent in charge. Mom, Robert is touching me. The lightning quick response becomes, no I am not. Because in reality, you are not. And I was not. In the case of the invasion that was not an invasion, Molotov was actually touching Finland. And he was claiming he was not. A duplicitous masterstroke. Regardless of whether the Soviet Union was invading Finland, the League of Nations called a special committee to deal with this invasion that was not an invasion on December 11th. 
The next day, that committee called upon the belligerents to stop all military activities and start peace talks based on the League of Nations rules. In response, the Soviet Union decided to completely ignore the League and proceed as if it were not there. So on December 14th, the League of Nations expelled the USSR by a narrow margin, it must be said. This expulsion had three consequences that we need to talk about. First, and least important for our season, it put a death nail into the long-constructed coffin of the League of Nations. For years after, it was unable to do anything about Hitler taking territory after independent territory. It sat back and watched Stalin do the same. It was absolutely passive when Hitler and Stalin decided to carve up Poland, prompting Britain and France to finally do something. And that's not even to mention what's going on in Asia, because the League of Nations at its inception made it quite clear it gave zero shits about any peoples that were not white. Unless they could exploit them, then they might care. Second, the USSR's expulsion freed foreign-friendly powers to finally give Finland much-needed aid. To be honest, for all the rhetoric in the West about this little David standing up to this big red Goliath, the aid was slow and nowhere sufficient if the Winter War went longer than expected. The best example to illustrate this point was the United States. On December 10th, 1939, the U.S. agreed to send $2.5 million dollars which is not even a percentage point of a percentage point of that small Baltic Republic's GDP for that year to Finland with a certain string attached. That money could be only used for agrarian and civilian aid, which is akin to placing a bandage on a patient's leg who's lost half their skull. After months of this type of weak tea aid, A Democratic representative of Brooklyn and Queens stepped to the rostrum in the U.S. Capitol on December 27, 1940. Emanuel Seller, opponent of American isolationism, hissed bitterly, quote, Because of these limitations, brave Finland cannot buy anything but powder puff and panties. Finland asks for ammunition, we send them beans. When they ask for explosives, we send them tea. When they ask for artillery, we send them broomsticks. End quote. The United States approached Finland in this isolationist posture because the people in power came of age to see how lending money abroad for war had a vacuum effect, sucking the U.S. into the Great War eventually. Those in power during the Winter War did not want that again for the United States. Although I cannot help but point out this notion of neutrality did not stop the U.S. from being pretty involved in the Spanish Civil War and backing China in its struggle against Japan. Regardless, I say all that to say Finland heard all those nice words about its plucky little republic standing and fighting the big bad Bolsheviks. But actual support in terms of men, material, and money came well short when measured up against that rhetoric. This we will return to after the Soviets reform and finally crack the Mannerheim line. But now, let's get to the third consequence of the League of Nations expulsion of the Soviet Union. It freed Stalin from any obligations. It also freed him to pursue other policies, which in a war for a nation's mere survival sounds more ominous than what Finland already had going on. 
One of the policies that Stalin wanted to pursue was a third offensive on the Karelian Isthmus. But that will be for next time, where the Red Army finally gets its act together and Meritskov becomes one of the greatest strategists of all time.